Welcome back to episode 29 of the Avery Adventures podcast. First, I want to thank everybody who reached out for Tanya, who had hip surgery a couple weeks ago. She's doing great. Tomorrow she starts walking, and uh, that means me and Lane can go elk and antelope hunting next week. So it's the first time in a long time I haven't bow hunted for elk, so I'm itching to get back out there. But back on to Tanya's deal. She's doing great. Starts walking tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. As always, this episode is brought to you by mountainops.com. You can get 20% off by using the code FATKID at checkout at mountainops.com. We'd really appreciate it. We're still giving away a $100 gift certificate every episode. And this week's winner is number one trail girl. So number one trail girl, thanks for leaving a review on iTunes. Uh, please get a hold of us at Tanya or Ryan at AveryAdventures.com and we'll get you that gift card. We're also brought to you by Rockside.com. I get gear questions every day and 99% of them can be answered if you just go to the forums or rockside.com and ask your questions. Super knowledgeable people, super nice. We don't allow a lot of bullshit on there, so go check it out. Uh, one more t- one more thing before I get into the who the guest is, is we did a podcast on communication, backcountry communication devices, and we kind of knocked on the Globostar, and we got some feedback from people that say, I don't know what you're talking about. The Globostar is awesome. Well, all we're, we're going to relay on this podcast ever is our experiences. So we're not trying to say the Globostar doesn't work for you. It did work for me in Alaska, if you listen to this episode, but in Idaho and Montana, Southern Idaho, it didn't work for shit. So we're just going to tell you our experiences you can take that for what it's worth. We're not trying to sell anybody on any certain product. The Iridium kicked the shit out of the Globostar in every way, shape, or form outside of Alaska, which they told us it wouldn't work in Alaska. So that's just our experiences, and that's what we're going to tell you on each and every episode. hope that clears that up. On this episode, I have a great guest. It's Darren Epp. Darren Epp is a super talented wildlife photographer. He's a conservationist. He's a philosopher. Just a really sharp guy and a great podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Avery Adventures podcast. I'm Ryan Avery. And I'm Tanya Avery. Today on the show, we have Darren Epp. He's a hunter, photographer, conservationist, uh, philosopher. Welcome to the show, Darren. Hi. I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Is that are all those true? It seems like all those are true, looking at what you're doing online. Well, I, I'm... More active now than ever, for sure, and I, I definitely enjoy that part. Uh, I guess it allows me to uh, reach out to people. Uh, I enjoy that part. Yeah, it seems like you really enjoy the photography part. It looks like you're com- if you're watching the video, it looks like you're coming from us from a a uh, outbuilding in the middle of nowhere. What what are you doing? Where are you at? I uh, am actually an inspector uh, doing uh, a plant shutdown at the moment uh, up in uh, northern Alberta at a uh, uh, oil sand site where we have open pit mining of of oil and uh, this particular place that I'm at uh, produces about 220,000 barrels a day and uh, we're just in the process of going into a plant shutdown where we're going to fix all the things that need fixed and uh, inspect a bunch of things that require regulatory inspection. So I'm in my camp room at the moment. I got a day off. Uh, I, I'm on a, currently on a six-in-one schedule and uh, I'm going to be that way till probably the 1st of November-ish. What, oh. what does that mean, a six-in-one schedule? Um, on six days and then off one day just 
because that's regulatory. It's that's what I thought you probably meant, and I was hoping it wasn't. <laughs> well, I, I'm doing actually four shifts of that, and then 24 days straight until we get to the end. So hopefully, wow. I can survive. It's uh, the whole photography thing is what gets me balanced uh, from this kind of a lifestyle in in terms of work. So uh, I'm going to miss it a lot. I, I I took off four days. Typically, I'm on a 14 days on and 14 days off schedule, so that's a really good work-life balance, and that allows me to do a lot of this photography that that I enjoy, and going out and meeting people in the photography world and beyond. And uh, but uh, this is going to definitely stretch my sanity. <laughs> I can bet. Did you have any hunts planned that this messed up, or any photo shoots planned that messed it's messed up? Uh, hunting for sure. Um, I have a, a Labrador that uh, just loves to bird hunt. So to miss that opportunity this time of year is, is really painful. Um, whether both upland or, or migratory birds. Um, sheep obviously is, is this time of year for us in Alberta. So having to work now is, is missing out on that whole opportunity. Uh, photography wise this prime time right now for elk and that that's really painful to miss um, most of the other stuff I can catch up on later but elk is, is hard to hard to miss this time of year because it's a lot of fun so what kind of what kind of um, camera do you use well I it's kind of I don't have a single camera I uh, it's kind of the same as having trying to have one vehicle that does all the work. Or um, backpack. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> same thing. Exactly the same. You can't buy a, a gas economy vehicle and expect to haul a camper with it or, or this sort of thing. So what I tend to have is a little bit of variation, variety that I can uh, use according to where I'm going or what I suspect I'm going to do with it. Mm-hmm. I tend to be mostly Canon oriented because I've over the years become more comfortable with it and, and enjoy its features in general. Um, but I do have uh, a Sony camera that's a uh, A7R2, which is a fairly high megapixel kind of a landscape camera that I use when time or where, where uh, space is a little bit more of an issue, space and weight. I uh, was intending to use it more for a uh, backpacking type alternative when I didn't have a lot of space and needed the quality to, to kind of go with it. But uh, So I got uh, one, two, three, three other Canon cameras. I've got uh, their biggest pro camera, the 1DX2, which is the most current uh, release. And... Um, it does the majority of the work I would say that I do with photography, with wildlife photography for sure. Um, I do have both full frame cameras and, and crop cameras. It's maybe not something everybody understands in terms of uh, what they mean, but uh, they both have also different functions, uh, places where they kind of excel. Right. To, ba- to back this up, 
If you guys don't know who Darren Epp is, you need to go check out his Instagram page, and it's D-A-R-R-Y-N-E-P-P, because he's one of the best wildlife photographers out there, whether he claims to be or not. I'll put that out there for him. But I want to take it back to where, how did you begin this journey into photography? Because you don't get to the level you get by just walking out one day and say, shit, I'm going to take some pictures. That, that was going to be my next question. Was Good job. it? Good job. Yeah, <laughs> how did it start, and how did it progress to where it is now? It's almost kind of like that, though. <laughs> <laughs> You're just that good, huh? No, I don't know about that. But uh, when you're passionate about something, it, it tends to show uh, in results of some kind. You don't, you got to know what good looks like, and that helps. Uh, same as the occupation that I'm in uh, as a welder before being an inspector. If you don't know what good looks like, it's hard to uh, achieve uh, even through uh, practice or whatever. Um, so basically, when I was quite a bit younger, doing a lot of adventuring and stuff, uh, my parents' uh, relatives were definitely not into hunting outdoor lifestyle at all. So it was kind of me and, and uh, a friend that I chose that was similar in kind of avenues of adventure that would go out and, and do all kinds of crazy things out in the woods and stuff and and we didn't take a lot of photos of it to start with but uh, my dad did have some cameras around because he was a uh, him and my mom did some uh portrait wedding photography kind of as a sideline when they were uh working uh, so my dad had some cameras around. I did pilfer one of them and put it through the paces, which I probably shouldn't have, but uh, it did pretty well. And I mean, I protected as best as I could with the kind of adventures we we're going through. Uh, ultimately, that was in the film days. Uh, that's a rough time because uh, that's definitely learning the hard way, uh, especially compared to the the kind of equipment we have now where you've got access to instant results uh, you just look at the back you can see if you're overexposed underexposed right. whatever you know you, you definitely have a, a much better chance to learn as you go um, in the film days it was so hard uh, to even practice enough because you always had to consider the the development cost and and just there were so many things that were very difficult, especially as a self learner, and uh, that's basically where I'm at. I don't have any formal education in terms of photography. It's it's about just beginning to learn the concepts of of what you're trying to accomplish, how you can make your tools accomplish that, and uh, using them as best you can. How how far along in that progression did you think? Man, I'm I'm okay at this. I mean, I guess how or how far did you go until somebody said, "Hey, that's really good. I want to buy one of those." Well, it, it's definitely become a lot more um, advanced. Let's say uh, after the age of digital, where you can, where I could begin to um, both experiment with the camera itself and a little bit in the post process. Uh, that's another tool that we have uh, these days that we never had before. You can be uh, not only 
uh, touching up stuff that that's not quite right, but you can also be creative with it in a way that you never could really before. So that gives us a little bit more latitude in terms of making kind of a unique statement in our in our work. Right. Uh, I guess some of it is is kind of a a natural flavor uh, for um, what we're seeing, uh, concepts and stuff. Uh, often I can be driving along the road and, and look over and see whatever, uh, uh, the way I, the light's hitting something in particular, and I go, like, wow, I, I have to stop or I have to turn around and, and capture that because it, it really, you know, appeals to me. It, it, it grabs me. Uh, so I think that's probably something that's kind of natural uh, for most people, or mm. and it can grow obviously too. Or you can you can try to teach it to people too, but I think some some people is very natural. And uh, I guess in the last two or three years, people have started to say, "Well, yeah, you're pretty good with this or that or the <laughs> other thing." And, I don't like to think of it that way. I, I tend to try to be pretty humble, and, and I do it because I love it. So I try to kind of put that to the side and not get too um, worked up about it. But it, it's neat. Uh, I think for me the the best part of it is not necessarily the recognition, but more the outreach that I have because of it. Uh, you know, I've done some really cool things in the last year going to meet with people all over the place and all because of connections through photography uh, with Facebook or Instagram or whatever, uh, just meeting like-minded people and, and, and traveling and, and, and getting an opportunity for them to show me their cool backyard and, and kind of the stuff that they have that's unique that I, I typically don't see in an average week or two weeks around where I would tend to go myself. Like I just came back, uh, the shift, the last full shift that I was off, I was up in Alaska for uh, 10 days on an invite from a friend up there that I'd never met before, a Facebook friend, and we went and pre-scouted some, some doll sheep for his uh, wife's tag that she drew, and uh, uh, the time before that, or a couple times before that, I was down in Wyoming meeting up with a lady there that was doing a bunch of outdoor photography at a at kind of a different pace, different level, different, you know, different style. So yeah, just all over the place, just enjoying the heck out of that for sure. Yeah. You're, you're very humble because when I look at your stuff, I'm like, how in the hell did they get that picture? And how in the hell did he get that lighting, especially in the woods? Because it's, it's easy, and, and I suck all the way around at taking pictures, but it's easier for me to take a picture, obviously, at my house than it is in the woods with the lighting, the background, the sun, the clouds. So you're being very humble. But on, on that note, how, what is your favorite? If you could only Darren could only take one picture of one animal for the rest of his life, what animal is it? <laughs> That's cruel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I don't know, you followed stuff on on Instagram and Facebook long enough to realize that I'm very well-rounded that way. I don't just take pictures of wildlife. I take pictures of everything, and I and I enjoy the everything part of it. 
uh, I encourage people that are uh, developing their skills as wildlife photographers to make sure that they're also looking at the rest of the cool wild world around them because there's so much to take advantage of. I mean, we spend, uh, when we chase wildlife, we're in their backyard a lot. Uh, we tend to uh, focus on times when they're the most spectacular, of course. Uh, but um, uh, one animal, I, I really like mountain animals for sure. Uh, sheep are probably what I'm most known for. I do spend a lot of time with sheep. Uh, I uh, support fairly actively the Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, the Alberta chapter, the BC chapter, and the national people. Um, they they use my images a fair amount for uh, promotions uh, to communicate to people and to create enthusiasm. And I appreciate that part. I like to share. So that's probably why I do it more than anything. I like when people get excited about uh, our wildlife, especially interesting animals like mountain animals that exist in, in, uh, in habitats that are, are, are crazy. Right. That's. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think there's been a lot of discussion um, in the last couple of years about conservation and um, people are always wanting to know, well, what group should I join? And I think that that's a personal choice for everybody, but it's so hard for a lot of people to differentiate, um, you know, what groups really are giving back the most and what groups are just all about the hype. And um, so it's, it's really interesting to me to hear other people, what their, um, their choice of conservation groups that they dedicate their time and money to. Um, Cause it's really, it's really hard for a lot of people unless they invest a lot of time into researching it. And then you really still never know <laughs> what, yeah. you know, Yeah, I hear you there for sure. Uh, I've always, I mean, I've, I've seen several of the groups and I, and I really do have a partiality to, uh, some of the stuff, the the the, the general, uh, I guess, the family type atmosphere that uh, that we get with Wild Sheep Foundation specifically, um, but there are certainly some good uh, conservation minded groups like uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for sure. They really hold standard quite high as well. Um, so yeah, I I'm partial. I like mountain animals uh, a lot, so uh, mountain atmospheres a lot. So wild sheep is definitely where I tend to hang my hat most of the time. <laughs> have they have they used any of your photos? Well, yeah, they tend to use them quite a bit with their uh, online promotions. Um, last year, actually, at the at the show, they had a fairly good sized uh, sheep image on there, just about everywhere. <laughs> Why would, why would they not? I mean, that, those <laughs> are amazing pictures and that's, you know, that's great that you're able to give them pictures that they can use for promotions because it definitely draws you in. Yeah. Yeah. On well, that, it's, go ahead. The, uh, you also, we, before we jumped on, you talked about the Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. I think that's an up and coming organization. Can you shed any light on that, on what their direction is? Yeah, they're quite, quite uh, educationally oriented at the moment. Uh, they don't fill quite the same 
genre that wild sheep does. Uh, wild sheep, because there's more species, tends to be a little bit more elaborate, uh, more, um, I would just say, uh, it, it grabs a, a greater population, I think, more than anything. Uh, goats are kind of a little unsung hero type type of an animal uh, that has some very unique challenges, um, primarily in hunting, uh, because the influence that we can have a lot of times with uh, the animal gender that we uh, that we harvest tends to be uh, significant, especially on, on a situation like goats where they're sexual maturity is a little bit later and their uh, proliferation is a little bit slower in general. Uh, the fact alone that, that it's very difficult to uh, select a gender when you're out field judging animals is, is probably the greatest challenge and probably the, the greatest area where the Goat Alliance has tried to um, help people to uh, make good judgments, tell them when not to uh, uh, select an animal because they're not sure enough. Um, they just actually released a really good video here in the last uh, in the last two weeks uh, that uh, was actually um, in the making for two or three years. And uh, Stephen Ranella did the uh, voiceover for it, and it's just an excellent, excellent educational video. Something everybody should do for sure. It's interesting in goat hunting or just uh, goat conservation in general. Is there any overlap from the wild sheep for goats? Are they just simply all sheep? I'm pretty ignorant on that side. No overlap technically, uh, although I think that they've blended their efforts together. Uh, Peter, the president of the Goat Alliance, is, is quite involved with the Sheep Foundation as well. Um, they do share, I think, some administrative duties now. Uh, so they're kind of very complementary, uh, though they are separate organizations. They do uh, bounce ideas off each other to get good uh, processes and movement forward and stuff. Pete from Stone Glacier, he's the one that started the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, correct? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. He's a real trooper, that man. <laughs> yeah, I was. I didn't know. I was reading something where they were getting guys to go actually count goats. I think in Oregon a while back, and in southern Idaho, which is pretty cool. I had no idea. So the information's not getting out. So yeah, people need to go check out the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Yeah, they've got a lot of good uh, efforts. I, I was involved in one last year down in uh, in Idaho uh, in the Frank Church Wilderness. There, I spent uh, two or three days with with Pete himself up doing a goat survey there and uh, I think you know even in that particular project that we we're on uh, there was uh, some information um, created uh, that they had done surveys uh, like 12 years in a row or 12 years apart uh, like three times or something and, and just didn't have good data couldn't didn't go wasn't enough of a priority in that area to create that um, money base to do flights and stuff so I think just the ability of this team of people volunteers to uh, go out and, and do what they love to start with and, and put some good impacts back into uh, that conservation 
education uh, information movement is just it's really priceless and and people get involved it, it's it's it, it helps people too uh, you know the people that want to have uh, a conservation impact are the uh, actual fish and game entities listening to those count numbers and adjusting their harvests accordingly or has that taken hold yet yeah, I, I really suspect so i know that uh, peter gets involved very closely with those organizations or those affiliations uh, and they're almost always involved in the counts themselves. They they create the the areas that they want to do surveys in, and then they end up uh, collecting that data or using that data, uh, probably aligning for future uh, efforts too to to reassess or reevaluate. It sounded like in that particular case down in the Frank Church, they were going to actually potentially put in some uh, um, hunting potential draws uh, because of that effort that we had down there. Nice. That's glad to see it. We're actually working and them working hand in hand. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, the other question I have to say, being a Canadian, I'm sure you have an opinion on the trophy grizzly bears from BC. Can you give us your story, your side of the story on that and what you think should be done? Oh, that's a difficult one. Yeah, um, it is. It is. It, it grieves me that it, it uh, has come to that status, though it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I did have an opportunity uh, probably four years ago to uh, hunt uh, grizzly bears in BC. It kind of came totally by accident. I had a, a friend in the uh, media industry that uh, had a friend that was an outfitter. Uh, that had a uh, an outfit in BC there and just bought into it. We were going to uh, see whether that particular zone would support a spring hunt because it was a very uh, very low access area, very poor access. And typically, any of the other hunting that they did in that zone was done with a float plane into certain uh, backcountry lakes and stuff. So uh, we uh, we over the period of two years. Uh, three individual efforts, I finally did uh, harvest a grizzly bear. It didn't end up being in the spring because uh, we basically decided that it was not feasible uh, given that area. The access was just too poor uh, to justify that kind of uh, an effort. Uh, we were at the very end of the season, like uh, uh, June 15th area, and still had uh, six to nine feet of snow in some of the passes that we were trying to forge into there. So it just didn't seem reasonable, especially as a, as a, a paid hunter situation. Uh, so anyways, uh, I did end up uh, harvesting a grizzly there. So I do have kind of a perspective in that way for that scenario. I, though I'm a photographer and I love uh, photographing bears and, and, and anything, and I, and I just love spending time with bears because they're very unique creatures. Uh, I do still believe in sustainable harvest of any animals. Um, I, I find it unfortunate that uh, uh, we as hunters have done a relatively poor job of uh, communicating to the world at large value that we have. Um, and uh, the influence, the positive influence we can have on animals, even like grizzly bears. Um, I don't 
see them as different than elk or deer or or really for that matter of Canadian geese or or uh, turkeys or whatever they all sort of hold that same value to me as a as a conservation minded person um, so it, it's kind of painful to see a targeting of an animal that's clearly a very um, high level predator um, I mean it holds a special place for me too uh, but it's it's hard to see it targeted specifically like that uh, knowing that it, it's not really uh, a population problem why they've chosen to do that it's clearly a, a political type um, public opinion type based uh, decision that they made I was still listening to a podcast just today from uh, the Journal of Mountain Hunting and uh, Shane Mahoney was on there with uh, with his host and uh, providing some really unique perspectives to that whole uh, controversy and uh, the fact that some of these discussions are a long time coming um, because the population in general um, hasn't been engaged uh, in an outdoor flavor for a long time. They don't rely on hunting as a way of life and they don't understand the sorts of bonding uh, both I guess from a, a wild perspective, the, the outdoor flavor that we tend to really appreciate as hunters and, and outdoors people, fishermen too. Um, they don't they don't get that. They're not tied into that. Uh, I mean, even for me as a photographer, a lot of the reasons why I photograph is I can't hunt all year round and and I need it to with the job that I have, I'm I'm pretty tied up mentally and and life can be somewhat burden burdensome as well. So it's a really good escape for me to kind of centralize, try to get get a grip on myself again, and I use photography as, as a as a good method to do that. So I think uh, I think we have a lot of uh, a lot of distance to cover in this whole uh, discussion about grizzly bears. I, I mean, you're in the same boat down south and with the delisting uh, process right. happening right now as well. Um, I try to engage a lot of people on both sides of the fence. I think uh, photography also gives me kind of that um, an ability for people to to find me uh, to uh, discuss things with me because it's not all from a hunting perspective. Yeah, Part of it, they don't see uh, you as a threat of a pure hunter. And sometimes don't realize that I'm a hunter, even yeah, though that too. Yeah. that too. Although I do try to throw a flavor of that in once in a while, just to make sure that people get it, uh, but not in an aggressive manner, not uh, not uh, blood dripping from my mouth kind of thing, where right. where it uh, it threatens, <laughs> and you can't communicate with people that are threatened. So, Have you ever found that after people realize or find out that you hunt, that they're attitude towards you has changed even though you've had a good you know dialogue up to that point i think generally a respectful nature gives you an opportunity 
uh, it's very rare that I come into a state where somebody, to be honest with you, the thing is almost weird, but I, I don't think I've ever had a death threat, which we see quite common amongst mm -hmm. the hunting community and people I, that stand have, out. We have. <laughs> Actually, with each other some yeah, days. Yeah, some but I mean, <laughs> I mean, other people too. They get in on it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. But I don't know if I count that as a blessing or the fact that I may be too subtle. Um, I try. I try not to be in people's faces about it because I don't think that's what our intent is. Our intent is to enjoy our lifestyle the way we feel is appropriate and uh, responsible in in the in our habitat that we're encroaching into. Uh, but you know, I think we have a real opportunity, and and I use that as one of my tools. Photography is a tool for me to engage people. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, sometimes, uh, like in the parks here, when we sometimes go in the, in the early season for bears and stuff, I'm often rubbing shoulders with people that are clearly not hunters or uh, <laughs> support hunting in any way. And, uh, and, and I take the opportunity a lot of times to um, engage conversations about hunting and and uh, help them to understand uh, a less desirable side from their perspective. Um, and it usually turns out okay. I mean, you don't always end up agreeing with each other or whatever, but it, it gives them opportunity to see another perspective. And that's, right. I guess, my hope. And they probably think about it later, you know, as they're thinking over the conversation. And I, I think it does make an impact in the positive because the next conversation or the one after that they might have with somebody, it makes them even more open to the subject. And it's twofold. I mean, I come away learning something. And, and even if it's to be more sensitive to the perspective of somebody else, because clearly the perspective of the non-hunting majority is going to have a great influence on our ability to hunt in the future. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and right now, at this day and age, as you well know, it's there's no middle ground. It's left or right. Mm -hmm. You know, you're with us or you're against us. And there needs to be a little more uh, peacekeeping in the middle. And I think that's where you're great, where you could come in, you have a camera, you're doing the same thing as non hunters doing, or maybe anti hunter, but you guys have something in common that can start that conversation. Yeah. That's true appreciation for what's out there. Right, and I, I, most hunters are like that too, and I, and and most people that are non-hunters, not maybe not most people, some people that are non-hunters are, are definitely anti-hunters tend to not see the perspective that hunters have, and to to really understand that appreciation that we have as hunters, uh, clearly we're not all on the same level either as hunters. We uh, progress through hunting in our own mature uh, rate of maturity. Um, we tend to start off in a, in a much different way in our younger years than we end off. Uh, some people never progress that much. Some people progress a lot and, and come up with a much wiser perspective of what we do and how important it is to, to the future communities of, of people. Um, so it's, 
I enjoy that influence. I, I gotta I know how does how do you uh, when you're taking the pictures? How do you bring bring up hunting, or how does it come into the fold? Those conversations. Well, you know, with with let's say for instance with bears, I mean they're not always active, so you know you've got let's call it dozens of people converged on an area. Uh, they know where certain bears might be. Uh, so they hang around and, and they converse with each other just in general, uh-huh. uh, talk about the life or, you know, these, a lot of these people are pretty common, um, users of the park. They, they tend, like, I mean, I go there and I tend to know most of these people already. They're very common or they're there a lot. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of opportunities to talk about stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Just while you're waiting for something to happen. <laughs> So have you noticed that some of the people you've seen over and over again, you're kind of shunned out of the group or are they pretty accepting? No, I think, I think in general, if you're not, you know, aggressive or, or disrespectful, I, I think we can, even the way we choose to talk about things, uh, if it's not so one-sided, I think it, it really helps if you're, if you're tr- truly trying to understand people's perspective, Right. it helps them to, to realize it's not, uh, mine or yours, it's 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 ours, and we have to work together to get to that goal of, of protecting stuff. Gotcha. gotcha. Though it is kind of interesting for them to try to. It's hard to communicate um, a lot of times why we enjoy what we enjoy because it doesn't always make sense for me to take photos of a, of a grand or grizzly bear. Um, magnificent species like it is and and go and shoot one um at another opportunity it's hard to wrap or sometimes even hard for me to wrap my head around i must say that uh, before i did go to hunt grizzly bears i had to really uh, grasp it myself uh, so right. i can understand their perspective so if, if we can kind of put ourselves into that place to understand their perspective to try to help communicate uh, what our real feeling is 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 probably a key to success that way right yeah and i think that gets lost in the shuffle if, and us hunters are not very good at explaining it i i hate seeing wolves chase down game animals i hate seeing bears attacking fawns and people think from the hunting aspect that we're just bloodthirsty killers and that i i hate seeing animals suffer period and it's, yeah. we need to we need to explain our side a little better i believe well, you know, and I and I was dressing this a little bit just in the last couple of days with an Instagram post to uh, a guy that was quite aggressive, aggressively uh, flavored towards anti-hunting, though claimed to be a hunter, uh, had a lot of things to say about that. And you know, I I'm going to take a couple more days to to regurgitate. Or, or or get into what he was trying to say there, but I think it sounds to me like it's kind of like a fairy tale type perspective. Uh, him putting down hunters because we're using all these fancy equipment, we don't we're not capable to to be true hunters anymore because we're using all this stuff and shooting long range and all this stuff. I think that. Uh, I think he's lost a little perspective on the reality of, of wildlife itself. It's not a fairy tale world out there. <laughs> a lot of 
you know, infants, uh, what's that word? Infant sideism or whatever with uh, bears killing bears. Uh, Cannibalism. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. I mean, it's just not, it's not a fairy tale world out there. It's, it's a beautiful world, but it's, 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 it's harsh. It can be very harsh. It's, it's real. And, and most of those people tend to forget or not, not be exposed to that, I guess. Right. And they see, and see our nature to hunt is only a, a bloodthirsty type, uh, self, uh, gratifying goal. <laughs> right. And, and there's a lot to that. You take back to the Bomars that use the spear on the bear up there in Canada and people say that's barbaric. And then you have the people saying we have too much technology. I think yeah. that uh, a lot of those people, they're just uneducated and they need to do a little reading. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or experiencing it for themselves. I think that's that really something that, uh, unfortunately our society is, is, you know, kind of, torn away from uh, clearly this whole trend in BC there to to uh, communicate to the government that grizzly bears should be not hunted anymore uh, a lot of that comes from very urban type populations that are quite large um, so they, they they certainly have a great influence yet their exposure to the reality of wildlife or habitat stuff is is very limited I think that's reality for us these days on that, on that bear note, was it a fact of the anti-hunters just simply made more noise than the hunters? Is I mean, I'm not exactly totally educated on that whole thing that went down. But how did that go from having a bear tag, having a bear hunting, and the science backing up that there's enough bears to harvest to not even have a bear harvest or bear hunt? Well, it certainly progressed over a large number of years. Even the four or five years ago that I did do a hunt, I didn't know for sure that I would get to hunt because there was enough noise then. Uh, it's been politically steered. Uh, the previous government in BC was a liberal government that, that did support the science-based approach of, of managing bears. Uh, currently, this present year, that uh, political party changed uh, through a kind of a strong-arm manipulation. Uh, Liberal Party did win, but in a very close uh, battle with the new, new, new Democratic Party. And uh, the third party was the Green Party. And there was some way politically that uh, the Green and, and uh, New Democratic Party could join uh, forces to strong arm the, the Liberal Party out. Uh, kind of a last second attempt to overthrow the the government that did uh, get the most vote so the part of the the uh, political platform of the new new democratic party was to uh, use the the poll numbers that they had conscrewed at the time um, that showed that most the majority of the people didn't prefer to have uh, grizzly bear hunting. They used that as as part of the uh, flow to to make what's happened now a reality, uh, supposedly for November. So there there will be a a fall hunt again this year, but uh, according to that 
determination that they've made to follow through on their party uh, platform. Uh, they're going to eliminate uh, bear hunting in one particular zone along the west coast in the Great Bear Rainforest out there. And then uh, through a very weird um, policy, they're, they're intending to try and muddle the, the mid-ground on that by saying that you can hunt bears in BC, uh, grizzly bears specifically, and um, but you can't take any what they would claim to be trophy parts. So you can't, you can go out and hunt bears, you have to bring the meat home with you, but you can't take the hide, the head, the cloth. You can't take that. that that's so, really the law? That's what their intent is, yeah. So they want to they wanna turn it into uh, a meat-only situation, no trophy aspect to it, to try to satisfy the the demands of some of their electorate and uh, therefore end up wasting, you know, part of a very precious animal to start with. Um, so it's it's kind of a, I, I don't know how long term that kind of judgment will ever be, unfortunately, because it's, it's not a good policy one way or the other. It's trying to satisfy both sides at the same time, I suspect, and not doing a very good job of it. I, I guess I didn't know that was the trophy aspect of what that means. When you say that, it doesn't even seem logical. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So potentially you could go out there if you were very trophy-minded, and this is some of the things that – because even the Green Party doesn't totally agree with the policy that's been outlaid by the NDP party. When they're together, they have to be together in order to, mm -hmm. to have this majority. But um, they don't even agree together because they see that as as wasteful as well, which it is. I mean, it, it absolutely, makes, you know, sense it's it's meant to sway hunters from hunting in general of grizzly bears, but ultimately, what could happen uh, even for non-residents, you could go with your guide and hunt a grizzly bear. You could go and take your trophy photos of it, uh, and then take your meat or have the the outfitter do whatever they needed to do with the meat to make it legal and then leave your hide and head in the bush, which is almost hard to fathom. No, I, I, I guess I, just when you, like you said that, it just, that dumbfounds me. I don't even know what to say. That That's, that is simply trying to get people not to kill bears. I mean, that's, there's no other yeah. way around it. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, and, and this is a really good lesson in uh, political sway. Hopefully that this is a really good lesson for you guys down in the States too, with your progression through the uh, delisting of grizzly bears, that it's a complicated issue. And, and, and there's a lot of people that, that get to vote uh, on, on our uh, use of, of hunting as a tool to conserve or uh, uh, deal with populations of any animals, and uh, that it can go this way. You know, it, it's yeah. it's not given. We we don't naturally get this opportunity. It's it's a it's kind of a treat that we have to protect and and have to realize that this potential exists of, of these kind of laws in place. Well, what, what would you tell the Canadian sportsman that, 
wants to get involved now that this has happened, what what did you tell him to do? How can his voice be heard? What would you how would you uh, get involved? Boy, that's a tough one. I I know that uh, that um, this gentleman that was on that podcast, Shane Mahoney, is a very strong advocate for for all conservation of all species, and some of the things that he said. Uh, kind of almost go against our, our our first thought of of this, and I think one of the things that that set out most in my mind about his perspective on it is that we have to stop as hunters to say that we're conservationists. Yet the only thing we focus on is game animals. Uh, we don't tend to value animals or speak out for animals that uh, that aren't game. Um, based that we utilize that ones that are in in peril as well but uh, don't have a voice kind of thing we need to start showing that we're really conservationists and not just uh, walking or talking walking the talk and not walking the walk sort of thing um, I think yeah. that's was that's probably what we need to do in a in a longer perspective uh, this may happen, and, and it, it it might last only a couple of years. It might change in terms of uh, its wording and stuff. I know that, uh, like now in Alberta, we haven't had a grizzly bear hunt in quite a number of years, um, uh, based on uh, delicacies in population in general. We don't have quite the same dynamics in habitat that BC has, but um, certainly a lot of it is political in nature. And right. we have to understand that that's that's a, the reality of our day and age. Um, and uh, try better as uh, as sports people to uh, show people that we care, not just say that we care, and show up show otherwise. Right, we're bad. We're very bad communicators. Very passionate, mm -hmm. but very bad at communicating that passion. Well, yeah, we tend to be very conservative. I think the problem is is also is we have to basically prove to the other side that we do care and that we're conservationists, whereas they don't actually have, you know, they don't have to do their due, due diligence, excuse me. They can just say, you guys are wrong. And it's like the burden of proof is on us to have to prove that we're more than just bloodthirsty hunters and that we actually do care about the species that we're hunting so it, we have to be the bigger person, I guess you could say, and, you know, go that extra step to, to prove that, you know, we, we do care, whereas the other side doesn't. And I think that's a little frustrating to a lot of people like, well, wh why do we have to, you know, do all this stuff when, you know, we, we, the hunters spend the money for the trails and the parks and, you know, and it's like, well, because that's just the way it is. And, you know, the sooner you embrace that and, you know, work towards the better goal, I think it's going to just be a lot easier. But we, we do have the burden of proof on, on our, us to do that. Well, I think a lot of times they, the population in general doesn't even really understand the fact that we carry the, the biggest part of the burden um, Absolutely. just because of the model that's been created in North America in general um, based on really good uh, forward thinking of, of some of the administrators back in that time. So uh, I think the more they understand, the more we help to, to communicate 
those kinds of things that maybe help people a little bit to understand the impact that we've been trying to have in history uh, as well. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, it, unless you, you know, put the time into research it, you wouldn't realize that if you are a non-hunter, but um, just in the aspect of that we have to prove that we're, you know, evolved, I guess, and that we're just not out to hunt to kill things and display trophies on our wall, um, I think yeah. is even a bigger burden to have to prove to people because it, you have to, to me, you have to show that before people even be opening to hearing your argument. You know, I think that's one of the neat natures of the photography part of it is it gives this platform to cross those barriers a little bit better and communicate <laughs> to people. Absolutely. Shows them, shows them kind of a, a multi-faceted or multi-level interest and concern and and passion, I guess. Yeah, I when I that's the first thing that jumps out when I see your stuff is you can cross that bridge where a lot of hunters, you know, twofolds, they don't have the talent that you have to take the pictures and we're too damn stubborn to take that step. And I think more of us need to take that step and start engaging with the non-hunters. You know, the anti-hunters are going to do what they're going to do. It's the non-hunters, obviously. You hear it over and over again. They're the people that are going to decide whether this happens or it doesn't happen. And I think we need to start taking that extra step to uh, explain our side and get more people involved. And it's neat to see some some fairly large companies embracing that same flavor too, even in their uh, advertising communication style, uh, to to bring more relativity to the event of hunting instead of the hunt itself, uh, more the the flavor of the the journey rather than always right. the, the trophy itself. It, right. It, creates a different perspective, um, one that people can embrace regardless of whether they're hunter or not. No, that's a great point. That that um, We stress that a lot with, you know, invest in companies that give back, that show the side of hunting that you, you know, are passionate about because um, it makes a difference. Yeah, some of them really stand out these days. You know, that's Sitka and Yeti and, and a lot of those companies are really trying very hard to create right. that different perspective. Yeah, and I'd say First Light's another one. First Light's really trying to push the journey, not necessarily the kill, which I think helps. Yeah. The uh, What do you think? I can post pictures on Rock Slide. I can post pictures on Avery Adventures of deer and elk that have been killed, and nothing really seems to come. But if I post one dead bear or one dead wolf, I can guarantee the antis will all show up. What do you think triggers that emotion? Is it they're, they're soft and cuddly when they're cubs and pups? Or what do you think triggers that in the anti-hunters that they feel they need to come and tell me they're going to kill me or somebody in my family for posting that stuff? It's it's weird. It's, it's, it's like they – it's almost like they have more of a, a, a personal type uh, personality, more of a human type characteristic. Uh, you, anytime you travel through the parks or anywhere, uh, it's always the bears along the side of the roads that create the most interest, the most uh, tragic bear jams and all this stuff. <laughs> People have a, an incredible fascination for bears and wolves and, and for whatever reason. And I almost think a lot of, I mean, it's partially sensationalized by our, our society, but at the same time, there are some really 
human-like characteristics that they tend to have. Uh, I had a really interesting uh, incident last year uh, in the spring uh, photographing grizzly bears where there was a, a mating uh, pair that had just got together a couple of days before I was out there and, and uh, they were going through the dance the whole time I was there and it was just incredible the, the images that I was able to get during that day or two period that they were first together and kind of almost in an intimate nature towards each other. They almost huh. like they blocked out the whole world and they were just dancing the whole time. Um, and, you know, we, we can't help but look at that and, and kind of think of the, think humanly about it. And right. we truly don't, I mean, animals, regardless of what they are, don't, they don't think the same way humans do. I mean, even like our dogs and stuff, we love them as much as we do. We think that they have great feelings and stuff. But when you train dogs, you realize that certain things motivate animals and some things just don't work because they aren't like human beings. So I think humans, unfortunately, see animals in a different way than they should because they aren't humans and they, they don't respond like humans do. And uh, bears and, and wolves and stuff just seem to have that place in people's impression uh, that creates this strange, uh, you know, when we, when we kill them or use uh, conservation or, or population management of any kind, it, they just can't quite grasp that, I guess. Right. Yeah, they're polarizing. You kill – you. You can kill 50 fish and you're cool, but you kill one bear and you're yeah. a bastard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, so. you know, when I usually do try to communicate in some way, a lot of times I will use a bear or a bear uh, hunting event to try to stimulate that conversation uh, because I know it is on the edge of, of that acceptance um, Right, but I try to do it in a flavorful enough way that it's not uh, aggressive or or uh, cruel or or you know kind of distasteful. Right, uh, but at the same time, right. trying to you know motivate or or engage people uh, to to you know communicate what they feel and why they feel it and you know that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I guess we kind of beat that conservation thing to death, which is good, but. <laughs> Getting back on the lighter side, on the photography side, Sony or Canon? Uh, it's kind of like we spoke about just before the the things kicked off here. Uh, you can never really have one flavor if you're if you're if you're kind of you know trying to take pictures of everything. It's certainly um, you can't buy one. Vehicle to do all jobs. Uh, you can't buy a fishing rod that does everything well, or a gun, or whatever. Uh, so, for the most part, for me, wildlife-related, uh, I'm a Canon guy. It's uh, it's something that fits my flavor the best, uh, fits the need of of technicality the best for me. Uh, I do own a Sony. Uh, I use it in in a different way. I use it mostly for landscape stuff or it's it's a it's a smaller package, lighter package that I would typically use for 
uh, backpack situation where I didn't have room for a full-size camera or, or lenses and stuff. So in general, I don't like to say one or the other. I know I have lots of friends that have Nikon stuff, and I poke <laughs> them all the time just because it's fun. But um, each each person has their own preference for stuff. But uh, for me, a full-size camera for wildlife is, is definitely the best solution. Um, you need speed. Uh, wildlife is something that uh, you need to capitalize on low light conditions most of the time. And you need frame rate to to get all those little details between movements and stuff that that make or break the best shot. So which which uh, model though? Because we'll get asked of both cameras. Do you do you have? Well, I Sony actually yeah, I actually have I have three currently Canon bodies. Uh, the one I use the most is the 1DX2, which is uh, their kind of their flagship model. A uh, little bit out of the range of most people in terms of money. Uh, but where it shines for my type of work is that it's got really good ISO performance, which is basically the sensitivity of the sensor. So I can really push the lower light situations and come up with images that are quite uh, uh, printable uh, resolution is high enough. Um, uh, it also gives me a really high frame rate. It's 14 frames per second, so it, it it's the one I typically use. It's really heavy too, so in combination with the lens that I usually use, it's like 12 or 14 pounds, so it's wow. not yeah. practical for some things. Good Lord. Yeah, exactly. Like a gun. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 advice would you tell the budding wildlife photographer? What advice, tips, tactics? Don't do this. Do this. Just a general advice, I guess. Uh, I'll go twofold on that. Uh, equipment wise, I would say um, make sure that you look very closely in your budget at at glass. Uh, same as, as we do when we're hunting, uh, glass is a very critical portion of what we do because it, it makes or breaks what you can see. Uh, images are, are uh, uh, probably 90% of the images is created by the glass in between the sensor and the subject. So that's certainly something that I would recommend is make sure that you put enough priority on what you select for, for lenses because uh, we can lose perspective in buying a better camera and just having the, the typical um, store uh, cheapy lenses that they the kit lenses basically that come with them that people think oh I've got a 25 or a 55 to 250 or something uh, millimeter lens and it's it's great I mean but most of the time they're not up to that level from the other side I would say most people don't understand the functions of a camera, the capabilities of the camera. Me, and, me. And, and there's, there's really three basic things that, that <clears throat> we can control in the camera, digital-wise anyways. We didn't have so much latitude in the film days, but in, in current digital age, we have a lot of flexibility with ISO, which is that sensitivity of the sensor. 
uh, and the aperture, which is the opening of the, the lens uh, iris, very similar to our eyes, and the amount of light that it lets in, and, it, and its relation to shutter speed. So between those three things, we have an impact on all of those things, and it, and it gives us the ability to manipulate what we produce in our photo. Um, let's say creating like, uh, most of the time for uh, a wildlife image where you're fairly close, you're creating a portrait type shot. Uh, if you create this element of very thin focus where there's just a very small portion of that whole depth of field that's in focus, it really helps you to uh, sensationalize your image. Uh, so we can create that or we can enhance that by uh, adjusting our camera appropriately and knowing those capabilities of it and knowing where the limitations are in terms of light uh, capabilities of the camera compared to the light as it's available in a day, we can really start to um, progress beyond uh, put it in auto mode kind of thing and, and hope for the best. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a good explanation. This is a million dollar question. I always see, and I get asked, and I get seen it on Rockslide. I see it all over. Is there a for a you know not a not a beginner, but an intermediate photographer, a guy that goes hunting a lot? Is there a point and shoot that can do a lot of the features in a lighter platform that'll take good, say, landscape, good grip and grins, just good, you know, invite. I guess camping pictures. I, I'm rambling, but you know you get the gist. Yeah, there's certainly some stuff that fills the void fairly well. Um, again, it's a matter of how much reach you want, and that's where kind of that determining line is. All of them fit kind of into that point and shoot category, but there's some that are called super zooms that kind of have that 400 to 600 millimeter capability built into them. So you can reach out to, to create those wildlife type uh, images where you're trying to reach far enough for right. it to actually mean something. Uh, there's there's a few of those that are actually quite amazing. They're still than uh, some of the typical point and shoots where you have uh, maybe a three to five times zoom or stuff. Um, I know that. Uh, Aaron and a lot of the the uh, guys that have discussed some of those uh, smaller point and shoot uh, Sony's uh, got really good results out of those, and I haven't really used one myself, but mm -hmm. I know there are several models in the Sony line that do well there. Uh, for that super zoom line, uh, I understand, and I've recommended a few of the uh, Panasonics that uh, really do excel. Uh, have fairly fast lenses in terms of uh, aperture uh, capability. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly there's certainly lots of good options in that mid-range or medium application. Uh, you still have to understand the camera. And that's right. that's kind of what I'm trying to communicate as much as I can to most people. Is that as soon as you learn what it's capable of. You're also understanding what it's not capable of, so you're not you're not let down by expecting something that's not capable of. How many PMs you get on that a day? 
quite a bit actually quite a bit uh, it's it's actually surprising and i i can't always give good recommendations on a specific camera uh, but you know you can kind of lead people to at least consider uh, some things that they're not educated enough at that point to understand right uh, so you can steer them in the right direction at least even if you don't give them a specific i mean technology changes every day um, if you recommend a certain camera one day Two weeks later, there'll be something else that's way cooler and way better. So it's that's it's true. the flavor of the day. Yeah. I was also going to ask you, Darren, do you do weddings? Are you I have been coerced into doing some, but it's something I really try and hard to stay away from. I, I, I just had to mess with you. <laughs> no, it's a it's a good question, actually. Um, it's uh, it's something that I've done. A little bit, not on purpose though, never on purpose. And uh, and, and it, I do okay because I understand the concepts, but manipulating people isn't something I do very well. So if I have to set something up, <laughs> right. move right. people into it, and people are never satisfied with most stuff, and I prefer to stay away from that as, as much as possible. Unless I can do candid stuff, I enjoy that part. I, I enjoy being in the shadows looming and and taking the cool pictures of people interacting and stuff right. like that. Right. That I can do, but uh, the setting people up and, and making them look terrific is not my deal. <laughs> we just had a family friend take um, senior pictures of our son, and she said barely, very clearly, I usually do landscapes. This is a favor for you, and you only... <laughs> she was very clear about the fact that she did not... You know, this was not her forte, and she did an amazing job. But it just yeah. it cracks me up because some people just—I mean, people just have their preference because it's what well, they they know. And it's usually those people that have the skills, but they're not necessarily good at interacting enough with people to to create that uh, magic. I guess you could say. Right. That's that's hard to get out of people. It takes a special skill in itself, is to really make people shine. Yeah. 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 Well, last question, Darren. I'm trying to get a movement going to invade Canada. What's your thoughts on that? <laughs> uh, I don't think we got enough. Him, <laughs> I don't <laughs> think we got enough money for a wall, so I think you're pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I tell all my Canadian friends that, man, we need to invade Canada, man. We need to get up there and hunt some of those sheep. Yeah, they don't find but... it amusing, <laughs> but yet he keeps telling them that. <laughs> All right, you're, uh, we're pretty working. placid as Canadians. So, oh, you guys have you guys got that socialized medicine, right? It's working yeah, for you. you. Bet. Yeah. Um, where can people find you, Darren? Well, just about any time you plug my name into Google, it comes up with one of the three locations that uh, I'm available. Either I have a website, uh, though it's way behind any. I mean, I work full time, so it's kind of way behind all of my Instagram or or Facebook. Facebook posts, so probably the best places to to see current stuff and, and kind of catch the flavor of of who I am and what I've been doing is is most often on Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, your Instagram is next level, and that's yeah. When before I even knew you, Aaron's like, check this guy out. He's a next level photographer, and I would agree. You may be humble, but I'll put it out there. You're if you're not one of the best, the best for wildlife photographer that I know of. So well, I appreciate that. Just kidding, <laughs> just kidding Darren. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for having me on your show. All right. Thanks for listening. And as always, check us out at AveryAdventures.com and on YouTube at Avery Adventures. Thanks.